You ever come to church and not really feel like being here? Okay. All right. Most of the people serving. Oh, that's not good. Uh, so I woke up this morning. Well, I woke up multiple times this morning because of a newborn who's beautiful, and I love her. Uh, but I just, I, I came this morning, and I just, I, I get here first, and I get to spend some time by myself and with the Lord, me and myself and the Lord, and uh, I turned on the lights, and, and I just spent some time praying, and I was having a tough time feeling it, and I don't know if you guys know exactly what I mean, but I was struggling feeling it. And I started to pray for you guys. I started to think about you guys. I stood in the back and watched people. Hey, Kevin, started to watch people. Uh, I'm calling you out. Um, watch people show up uh, towards the end of the service or the beginning of the service. And, and I started to see faces and I know stories and I know lives of people that are here. And some of you I don't know. And that really excites me too because I want to get to know you. But I just realized like there are Sundays where I'm just not feeling it. And if that's true of me, that's probably true of you too. And so before we jump into this passage today, I need to ask the Lord to bless this time because there's no way that I'm going to have enough energy or excitement to do anything to change you. Only the Holy Spirit can change us. And so why don't you close your eyes and bow your heads and just in a moment of solitude, let's pray together. Father, I love the people that are in this room and I love the people that aren't in this room. I love the fact that there are people that you have decided to save and sanctify and change and transform to look more like you, God, and it's a process. But Lord, today we're going to open your word. Today we're going to invite you to change us. Today we're going to read things that are going to challenge us and it might point us to repent. And so God, I ask you that where there are places that you know that we're lying to ourselves where we aren't fully where we ought to be, God, that we would repent, that we would have a heart to say, God, not me, but you. Would you be glorified in this time? Lord, would your word convict hearts? Would it change people? Would it draw us to fall deeper in love with you, God? We thank you for what you're going to accomplish and what you're going to do. And Lord, may I get out of the way and may you speak directly to the hearts of men and women today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't like to come up here and like fake it, and so sometimes I just got to be like, hey, I'm not feeling it, or I'm super excited, or I'm you know, whatever, and so I'm sitting in, the, in my office, which we do at about 9 a.m. every single week, and Pastor Mike and Pastor Chris and I are praying, which uh, before Chris got here, Mike and I had been doing for years, and it's so nice to have a third voice to pray with and be encouraged by, and I started to think through things, and I started to realize like, guys, real quick, I'm a Christian. Like, I know normally we don't get that excited about something that's so, oh, yeah, you're a Christian, but, like, that means that I'm a little Christ. It means I'm someone who gets to emulate Jesus, that I'm an ambassador of Christ, not because I did anything, but because of what God accomplished and what Christ did. And so you might be here today, and you're yet to know the love of God. Well, my hope is this passage we're going to study will change that for you today. So thank you for joining us. As we're in the series called In Jesus' Name, Amen, you saw the bumper video, and we're, we've been going through the book of John since the ark, it feels like. It's been a long time. And we've taken a ton of breaks, and last week we began with uh, where Jesus prayed to the Father, where he wants the Father to be glorified by glorifying the Son, and that Jesus gives eternal life to those that the Father has given Jesus. Eternal life, as we said last week, is about knowing God, not knowing about Him, not knowing His stats, not saying what's up twice a year, 
but knowing experientially and personally the God of the universe who created us in his own image. Everyone wants to feel special, right? This isn't just me. Can we be honest in here? If you can't be honest inside the church building, where are you going to be honest? Like, we want to feel noticed in some cases. We like special treatment. We believe that anything that is done wrong to us is unfair and is mistreatment of us. I want to be special. I want a special treatment. I don't want to have to obey all the rules that others are following. Come on, can I get a witness? And this is an innate sense that I have internally, and I really don't want to admit it that often, especially in front of all of you and on live stream. But my guess is that this is more natural than I think, and it actually makes me even less special because more people feel this way than I realize. The reality is that when we come to Christ, we are both special and not special all at the same time. We are special in the reality that God chose us out of the pack and made us holy and new completely through His will and His grace. But we aren't special in the sense that we aren't the only ones. In fact, we are included in God's family, which uh, for most of us, uh, most people in the world, they don't walk the narrow path that Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount. But we are included in this very large family of God. As we have said often, God doesn't save only children. He adopts us into His very large family. He probably drives a 12-passenger transit like my wife. And today we're going to study how God sees his disciples who would become apostles, and we can see that Jesus, how Jesus sees these specific men who he chose to follow him. They were chosen, and they had followed him, and they would continue the work of the ministry of proclaiming not just Jesus' teachings, but that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose again. So in prayer, speaking to the Father, here is how Jesus continues, verse 6. I have revealed to you those who you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. This is something special about the fact that God has given Jesus these disciples, and Jesus revealed who God was to them, and through this, they obeyed his word. Not because of obedience is the Lord revealed but because of grace, because God gave to them Jesus. Jesus then revealed to them who God really is, and in turn, they have obeyed Him. They have trusted Him. They have followed Him. So let's be real. Christianity has a bit of an identity problem in the year 2021. For much of the United States, we think that being a Christian equates to someone who votes a particular way. Blah! Gross. Or that you are attempting as a Christian to clean yourself up or that you are striving to be a really good person. Let me be clear. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're a good person. Being a Christian means you're forgiven. That's the good news of the gospel, not that you're a better version of who you used to be. Christianity sometimes is thought to be a bunch of those do-gooders who follow a cosmic killjoy that don't want to have any fun. I went to Maroon 5 this week. I can have fun. But all of those external things that are not what being a Christian is really about, Being a Christian, the term, like I said before, is little Christ. A follower of Jesus means that you decrease while the Lord increases, that we see our value and our identity in who Jesus says we are rather than what the world says we are based on the brand of clothes that we wear or by what we accomplish rather than based on what Jesus has accomplished for us. And because Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection from the dead is so life-altering, it's so life-changing, we find joy and identity and purpose in Christ and no longer in ourselves. 
and our striving to be a better version of ourselves. So please, if you're hanging out with someone who's a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus, please do not equate your Christianity to I become a better person. Jesus did not die on a cross so you would sin less. He died on a cross so you'd be forgiven. I'm a little passionate about that. Verse 7, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Jesus is pointing out that these disciples believe Jesus, and who Jesus said he is, and who he was, and how he related to the Father. And Jesus, while praying for them, is acknowledging to the Father that their belief and obedience came from him. And it has manifested itself in believing about Jesus what many people in this day and age had scoffed at and were unwilling to accept and would eventually, in actually just a little while, have Jesus killed for. Verse 9, Jesus says just such beautiful words, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. I pray for them the disciples who would become apostles, not for the world. And this can actually be a little bit difficult to understand. This feels like Jesus only cares about those who God has elected. Well, yes and no. Election is the belief that God saves some, but not all. And well, we know that even though everyone sounds like they are saved at every funeral I've ever been to, people who obviously or even subtly reject Christ are without an eternity with Him. But Jesus specifically is praying for his disciples here because he knows that they're going to go through trials like most of us will never understand. To proclaim and defend the gospel is going to be really difficult for them. They will want to give up like we would. They'll want to shrink back like we would. They will want to deny Christ like we would. And yet the Son intercedes on their behalf so that God would get the glory that he is due. These disciples would be Jesus' witnesses, and what does a witness do? <laughs> Some of you listen. And they would boldly proclaim this message of the gospel throughout the world. And this could not be something that they could do in their own strength. This would be something that would require supernatural intervention and protection from God. Verse 10, all I have is yours, Jesus says, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. Jesus speaking of what's to come and what had come was the glory was being given to Jesus through his disciples. Now, I'm not going to walk through how lame every disciple was, but they were kind of lame. But what brought him glory? The fact that they would trust and proclaim this message of Jesus' purpose. The good news of the gospel, when we proclaim the gospel in a conversation or from a pulpit, or a music stand, we are giving glory to God because the message of the gospel is the opposite of being a good person or earning our salvation. It's all about Jesus and what he has done and what he has accomplished. And to give glory is to acknowledge and proclaim that. So you want to give glory to God? Testify to what Jesus has done. All I have is yours and all you have is mine, he says. Jesus either prays like a crazy person or as the Son of God. Because his continual placing of himself equal with the Father sounds ridiculous if Jesus isn't who he says that he is. So what makes Jesus so important? Well, we believe that Jesus is God with skin. 
But we also have had this verified by his willingness to die on a cross and his miraculous resurrection from the dead. That's why we get excited about these things, because they verify the fact that Jesus isn't some crazy dude, but he's Lord God Almighty. I think culture has become less interested in what is true and more preoccupied with how things make them feel. Is this true? If you're over the age of 35, you better say amen. And the problem with that, the problem with allowing your feelings to be the ultimate judge is that no one lies to you more than you do. And your feelings are an awful judge of things because they change. They're swayed by the feelings of others. They value popular opinion more than facts. And truth becomes some type of legalistic way of looking at the world. When you're a child, you feel like the best diet should be candy and ice cream. Can anyone testify to this? But that feeling just leads to stomach aches, health problems, and diabetes, doesn't it? And Paul addresses this to the pastor Timothy in Paul's second letter to him. He says it this way to 2 Tim, because that's my name. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Really? Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. I almost said a news station, and I did it. You're welcome. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This has been an underlying issue for all time, as the truth of God's Word seems to always be in conflict with culture. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. It contradicts us, and we don't like it. And that's one of the biggest issues that we have is when we read the Bible, it doesn't seem to be like the world that we're around. Why? Because we're in a broken world. So the truth of the gospel message must be something that we stand firm on, because without it, we might as well be in Elk's Lodge. We might as well be a Dungeons and Dragons guild. You're welcome, Laura. Happy birthday. But our faith is not built on a social club or rooted in fantasy. We stake our claim and live our lives on the fact that Jesus Christ resurrected. Amen, Daniel? And because of that, we can be sure of our future hope that we will spend eternity in the presence of God, worshiping and praising Him for all that He has done. Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer. Uh Uh-oh. But they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. If you're using your Bible, underline Holy Father. If you're using our Bible, underline Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Holy Father denotes this reverent intimacy that the Son had with the Father. You are holy, you are set apart, but you are my perfect dad. And Jesus knows he's going back to the Father. He knows that his death and resurrection are imminent, but focuses on and prays for his disciples that would continue in this world. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. This idea is not like the power of Christ compels you. Does anyone get that reference? It's almost Halloween, okay. Or that the name of God is repellent to evil. What this means is that in the name of God, his character and his person and no other name has this power. That no other person has the power of God that is represented fully in his name. So that may be, Jesus says, so that they may be like you and I are one. Jesus prays that they would be unified. 
These disciples, like the Father and Son, are unified. And the unity amongst believers is one that is not manufactured or willed. But what we read in Scripture is that it's kept by the Lord or it's guarded by the Lord to make possible. So when believers are truly unified in the gospel of Jesus, I believe we reflect the unity of the Trinity. The problem is that unity becomes the target rather than the gospel becoming the target. And so we justify ourselves by how well we get along with other believers more than we justify ourselves by grace that we don't deserve. If I understand grace, I can forgive others. But if unity is my target, I then demonize anyone who cares more about anything but unity. I don't want us to be unified in some external thing that will never satisfy. I pray and believe that Jesus prays that we would be unified around His name, the beauty of His grace, the saving nature of His person. And the truth of the Word of God must supersede, it must outrank our feelings But listen, that doesn't mean that we're not patient and willing to walk alongside people who are yet to understand. I know I've wanted to bend the Word of God to support my feelings, but I don't want to be unified around my feelings or my opinions or my preferences. I want to be unified with God and His people around the truth of His character and His Word because I believe that's where joy is promised. If you're here today, our hope is simply that you believe in Jesus. That's what we're hoping if your friend brought you, like, look at him and, like, hit him with your elbow. We hope that you believe God's Word. We hope that you trust the gospel of grace that Jesus lived, that He died, that He rose again so that any of us could stand before God known as innocent, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. That's what we hope you believe, but if you're yet to believe it, keep coming, because you're going to keep hearing about how awesome it is to know Jesus. And we hope that you believe that, and we hope that unity stems from that. Not the idea of, hey, we're unified because we like to be here on a Sunday, or because of how it makes us feel to be here, or because we really love the music. Great job, by the way, worship team. Or because of the building and the nostalgia that goes along with these walls. See, there's nothing wrong with those things, but if they become preeminent and ultimate, That's when we have a problem, because what we believe to be ultimate is God's saving grace, which is offered to us through the work of His Son. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Wow. The term name can mean authority and it represents the person in which the name is presented. Jesus came in the name that God gave him, came with the Father's authority, and that is what he protected the disciples with. None have been lost, Jesus says, except the one who was doomed to Scripture would be fulfilled. In Psalm 41, verse 9, the psalmist says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. This is calling out the reality that in just a few moments, in the next chapter, Judas, the treasurer of the disciples, would sell out Jesus for a very small reward and would regret it almost instantly. But Scripture being fulfilled by Jesus is one of the most obvious ways that one today can see that Jesus was not just some guy with a Messiah complex, but one who actually was seen beforehand and would walk in the works that were expected of him. Verse 13, Jesus says, I'm coming to you now, Father, 
But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Joy tends to be the equalizer of anxiety. Let me say that again. Joy tends to be the equalizer of anxiety. And Jesus speaking while still in their presence doesn't pray that they wouldn't have trouble, but that their joy will be increased, that the measure of their joy would be Jesus's joy. This is the joy that we're promised in the gospel. Not because life is easy, but because with Jesus, life is not lonely. We have a Savior and Lord who has walked before us and will walk with us as we go through trials and difficult circumstances. And Jesus prays for these disciples that would become apostles, and he says, I want them to have the full measure of my joy. Verse 14, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. The word, the truth, that he gave them wasn't necessarily just the Old Testament, but the fulfillment of the Old Testament, which was Jesus, his teachings, what Jesus had done. This is the word that is living and active, the entire and complete word of God that we have at our disposal on our phones, on an app, or in paper form, or on our laptops. And the Spirit who authored this word resides in you and I if we've trusted Christ for our salvation. The Spirit resides in us to bring to mind and remembrance more of what the Word says for interpretation's sake so that we would think biblically. Often we want wisdom, don't we? We pray for wisdom. We read in James. We want wisdom. Yet the wisdom that God offers is more understanding of what the Bible actually says, which He's already given to us. So when you pray for wisdom, don't be surprised if more passages come to mind. The message of the gospel, this good news, this thing that we proclaim, this thing that we want men, women, and children to understand and repent because of, it's difficult. It's difficult for those who want to justify themselves. It's a stumbling block for those who believe that either they are good enough in their own work or merit, or that they think they can just do it themselves. And the world may hate those of us who justify ourselves, not by our own ability, but by Jesus, because I'm with Him. Why? Because for some, they won't believe it because that would mean that they would have to give up control. That would mean that they're not the one in control. And for a Christian who has actually submitted their lives to Jesus, they see their giving up of control to God as freedom, not bondage. It's hard to get a speeding ticket if you're not driving. And if God is the one leading us, if He is the one moving us, if He is the one changing and challenging us, and we're just abiding by His Word, I don't think you can go wrong there. But if you're like me, you don't do it right most of the time. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. Why not just pray that, you know, hey Lord, why don't you take these disciples out of the world? Because these disciples would become apostles and they had a job to do a purpose to fulfill, a message to proclaim, scriptures to be lived out, and a Bible to co-author together with the Holy Spirit. But the protection from the evil one, in my mind, it's twofold. The physical harm that could and eventually would come to them was one side of the equation. The Father would protect many of them through some pretty gnarly circumstances while proclaiming the message of the gospel. Say gnarly with me. That's a great word, isn't it? I just really love that word. I know some of you were like, did he just say gnarly? Yes, I did. But he would protect them 
as they proclaim this message of the gospel, but he'd also protect them from the temptation to give up, to not endure, to not continue when the trials were continuing and the message was being discarded or not received. Do you know how hard it is to proclaim this and then have someone go, hey, you said that word wrong? That, that sucks. Am I allowed to say sucks, Chris? Okay. Mike? I, the, the reality is that proclaiming the message, every time I proclaim it, you have the opportunity to repent and change direction and follow Jesus, or you can deny it and stiff arm it and push away from it. And I don't have the power to change you, but the Spirit does. But it's frustrating. It's difficult. It's hard to proclaim and testify, not just from a music stand, but in person, and to share with someone and have someone go, I want nothing to do with that. Not because you don't have the right to choose, but because I know how great it is to know Jesus, and we just want that for you. So, the protection from the evil one was through difficult circumstances, but it was also from this temptation to not give up. After we conclude this book at the end of the year, I think it's going to happen, unless Jesus comes back, and then I don't care, we're, we're gone. But John, by the end of this year, as we finish this book, we are then going to, at the beginning of next year, jump into the book known as the book of Acts. The actions of these apostles who had seen Jesus alive after his death and proclaimed the message of grace all over the world, and Luke, the doctor, the historian, he documents while being led by the Holy Spirit this letter that gives us a bird's eye view of what the apostles experienced and how God used them to bring the message to both Jew and Gentiles. These men saw Jesus alive after he died. I want to know what they did, and that's what we're going to study. Verse 16, Jesus says, they are not of the world even as I am not of it. I'm pretty sure in the early 2000s, I had a shirt that said, not of this world. Anybody? It was pretty Christian-y. Thank you. Thank you. But the idea of not being of this world is that while the disciples who had become apostles were not residents of earth, they were sojourners. Did you use that word this week, Mike? Anyone? Anyone? Sojourners? Tourists is another way to say it. Because their residence was of the kingdom of God and not of this world, is what Jesus is pointing out. But look at how the Apostle Peter writes what we ought to do as tourists in this world. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. Let me break that down. Live such good lives. This doesn't mean the American dream. This means live lives that exude joy and purpose and meaning because our joy and purpose and meaning are found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Before I came up here, I was not feeling it. I was frustrated, and I went back through my notes, and I looked at what I wrote, and then I looked at this. Live such good lives that our lives exude joy and purpose and meaning. Not because I've got it all figured out, but because I have a God who did for me what I could not do for myself, and that should always supersede my circumstance. Verse 17, we're going to get theological and a little confusing. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, Jesus says. Sanctification is something that we at COV, Church of the Valley, we have stressed a lot, 
But in some cases, we've misunderstood or emphasized it in ways that just weren't appropriate biblically. The point behind sanctification, or another way to say it, is spiritual growth or Christ-likeness that we have talked about from the front a lot is that by obeying God for the right reasons, it can lead to spiritual growth. But I want you to see the note from the ESV study Bible that I read for this specific verse. Here's how the note says it. Sanctification is a lifelong process for a Christian. It involves both a relational component, separation from participating and being influenced by evil, and a moral component, growth in holiness or moral purity in attitudes, thoughts, and actions. This occurs in the truth as Christians believe, think, and live according to the truth in relation to God, themselves, and the world. This truth comprises the entire Bible. For Jesus says, your word is truth. The Greek word is surprisingly not an adjective, meaning your word is true, but a noun, which implies that God's word does not simply conform to some other external standard of truth, but that it in and of itself is truth. That is, it embodies truth, and it is therefore the standard of truth against which everything else must be tested and compared. The world doesn't like absolute truth anymore. Everyone can have their own truth, I've heard. Except God says that that isn't true because it is His truth and His truth alone that is the standard in which all other truth ought to be compared and judged against. So we tend to have two things working against us when it comes to being sanctified by the truth. We might not really believe it's true, that's one, and then even if we do, we read it and stop short of actually doing anything with it. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says it this way, do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. We can spend a lot of time thinking that if we read or hear the Word passively, then we're doing all that the Lord expects of us. But He doesn't want to lead us into information. He wants us to apply it as transformation. That's the point. That's the goal. That's the hope that we do something with the truth of the Word. So Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. These disciples that would become apostles were going to be grown and transformed from doubters and timid fishermen to bold proclaimers that God would use to change the world through the message that they would bring. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus' mission was to come, live perfectly, die sacrificially, and be resurrected supernaturally. And that is what he came to do in this world. And Jesus will send these disciples who become apostles into the same world to carry on the message of the gospel and be martyred and tortured and ridiculed. But because of the power of God through the Holy Spirit, they would not recant. They would not shrink back. They would not run and hide after they came in contact with the resurrected Lord of all. Here's the verse that's confusing. Verse 19. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, I even got asked by a few of you, hey, what does Jesus mean he sanctified himself? Because I thought sanctification was progressive. It is. Sanctification is this growing process, but sanctification can have two meanings that go hand in hand, even if their function may be a little bit different. To be truly sanctified means that you've been made holy, that you've been set apart this is what Jesus is implying when he says that for them, he will sanctify himself. He doesn't have any more growing to do to look more like Christ. He is Christ, but he is set apart. 
He is holy. He is the definition of holiness because Jesus is God. And throughout the scriptures, they point out his holiness. But we as God's people, we are also then set apart. We are made holy. We are both at the same time sinful in our nature, but a saint before God's very eyes. We are holy not because we earned it, but because our salvation was gifted to us, and that gift made us holy. In NIV, it's more confusing than other translations because it seems as if Jesus uses the same word with the same definition and the same meaning. But let's look at the extra spiritual version, ESV. Here's what it says. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, Jesus says, that they also may be, may be sanctified in truth. Sanctification can both be progressive, we are growing in something, and positional. We are sanctified or holy, or in this case, consecrated. We are set apart. Consecrate is to dedicate oneself to service of something. Consecrate is to dedicate oneself to service of something. And Jesus is set apart, and he is setting apart the apostles to do his work. He is dedicated to serve God and is dedicating the apostles to do the same. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, you are set apart. You are holy. You are consecrated. Not because of what you've done, but because of what God has done for you. Uh, this past weekend, we did way too much. Actually, this past two, three, four, five, seven weeks, we've done just too much. It's been fun, but it's been a lot. And this past Friday, my family and I went over to a friend's, uh, some friend's house that we hadn't seen in a long time. We used to do Monday night dinners with them back in the old days all the time. It was so much fun. And we got to check out their new house, and it was a great time. And the husband and I started talking about football, as you do. And he told me about the opportunity that he had to go to the first game of the season for the Niners this year. He was given these tickets by the owner of his company, not really having any idea how great the seats were. They ended up being club seats. Anybody? Yeah. Some, oh, yeah. Which meant while not only being on the 50-yard line in the lower section about 20 feet away from Jimmy Garoppolo throwing interceptions, oh, oh. They also, not that I'm bitter, they also had ex access to their own area to pick up food and drinks. They walked around this area, they grabbed hot dogs and nachos, sodas and waters, candies and snacks, and then as they grabbed all this food, they turned around and they looked for the register. They couldn't find it. Then a man who worked there who was dressed up in Levi Stadium apparel came up to them, and they asked him, hey, where can we pay for our food? And the guy responded, it's free. Based on your tickets, you get free food. You do not have to pay anything for any of these food items. And I'm sure Mark was like, okay. <laughs> and then he grabbed some more stuff. So then when they went and sat at their seats and ate all their junk food, he looked up the price of these seats. I'm not going to tell you what they were because it was stupid. <laughs> It was more than this guy, a dear friend of mine who makes a fine living, could ever afford with benefits that he still could not comprehend. Now hear me, I'm not dressed up in Levi's stadium apparel. I do have a Levi's jacket in my office, which would have made sense to bring out. But I have my pastor shirt on. That means I have sleeves. And I am a representative and ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you that your salvation is free. 
It doesn't cost you anything, but it did cost Jesus his life. And yet the benefit with having your salvation paid for is that you then don't get free food. I mean, we like free food. Pastors do. Pastor appreciation. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah, amen. What we realize is that the benefit is that we're made holy, that we're made consecrated. Not because we earned it, but because like those tickets, they were gifted and we'd never be able to pay them back for what they're worth. And this is Jesus' prayer for his disciples who would become apostles, that while they're in the world, but not of the world, they'd be set apart and they'd boldly proclaim the message of the cross and the empty tomb so that others could respond in faith and repentance and also be set apart and made holy and sanctified both positionally and progressively. Progressively. 